Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. Today's guest is Luke Mel. Yeah, so really cool learning opportunities and really hard after that first one. Yes, about the first one, like just crushed. I finished that, couldn't take care of myself. I needed help. I was like, never going to do this again. I am never going to do this again. That was so insanely hard. And I'm hobbled for like a month. Like I went to the grocery store and had to put all my weight on the cart, pushing the cart, you know, the wheeled cart to like get ice cream more than anything else to try to regain the weight because I lost like eight pounds. That was a long and hard recovery. And two weeks into it, I'm thinking about ways that I can improve and like, oh, well, if I had had this different food or if my shoes were bigger, getting fired up to go back next year. And, and I did. I went back for the next six years or something. Luke is a lover of Alaskan wilderness and nature with an incredible adventure CV under his belt. Born and raised and residing in Alaska, he has traversed the three highest mountains in North America, headed out to remote and wild regions of Alaska, and completed extreme multi-day endurance events. For education and vacation, he has also traveled and explored places like Norway, Greenland, Iceland, Svalbard, and Nepal, all of this while expanding his self-powered method to include hiking, biking, ice skating, pack crafting, and skiing. In this episode, we discuss traversing the three biggest mountains in North America, discovering and staying well away from the line of acceptable risk, adventures in Alaska and the Alaskan wilderness classics, experiencing gifts of nature, good fear and bad fear, the 60% rule, and so much more such as mindset and even mental health in the outdoors. Luke really delivers on insight, wisdom and inspiration this episode and I really, really hope you enjoy it. And before we go into it, I need to let you know he has just written a book about to publish, The Packrafting Handbook. So much fantastic feedback on the book. I've seen previews as well, it's looking incredible. So do check that out if you're remotely interested from a beginner to an expert level of packrafting. I'll leave the link in the show notes. But with no further ado, let's get into the episode. Luke, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's like to be here. Thanks for accommodating our, our radically different time zones. <laughs> yeah, yeah 11.30 in Alaska and uh, half eight in the UK. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's nice. Good morning to you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so um, a first question really is um, it, we've had people on this podcast explore for the, for, for the physical challenge, for culture and even capturing sound. If, as you say, you've got nothing left to prove after traversing Mount Logan, what are your whys for adventuring in wild places? Um, I think my motivation is, has always been mostly the landscape. Like I am a visual person and I just love collecting landscapes. And I, for whatever reason, it's most rewarding when I do that under my own power, rather than taking a train or taking a plane to see that same landscape. Um, if I do the work to kind of earn it, it's somehow more rewarding. So that's that's been my origins. I mean, just since childhood, like that's been my motivation. And of course, you can see the landscape without doing anything risky. So things get a little bit, you know, the, the equation gets more complicated there. And there's something about reward and, and the physical part. But ultimately, it boils down to landscape for me and, and kind of earning it, having to work for it. Yeah, I mean, you've said that you're not really a, a, an out-and-back kind of guy. Would you say that those landscapes are the deep drive for finding a different route back to the car? Yeah, totally. I'm, well, I'm impressed with your homework, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, totally. If I if it's a loop versus a, an out-and-back, it's like, no, no. Like, I'll go way out of my way to make a loop, you know, even if it has a bunch of 
um, unpleasant travel just because I feel like I'm seeing twice as much that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of that is the visual part. And then part of it is the sometimes the creativity that's required to, especially in Alaska, where you're where we're off the trail system for almost everything. It takes a little more creativity to to come up with a loop rather than just go somewhere and come right back. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I guess it's something I hadn't really thought about in the UK where, you know, everything is a trail system. So really, you know, to find an interesting place that doesn't have set routes would be kind of hard to do. Right. At least south of the highlands. I mean, that's part of what's beautiful about Alaska and, and how it's this unique opportunity and increasingly unique year to year, decade to decade. But it is the experience of off trail travel is is radically different than on trail. Um, I've had a few experiences where we catch a, a mining and like an ATV trail uh, several days into what, what had been uh, off trail. And we noticed this is an experience my wife and I had this summer. I was like, whoa, did you just start thinking about like chores and stuff like back home? And she's like, whoa, yeah, I did. Like something about being on the trail and not having to focus your attention on where you, on your footing and where you're going, you know, making sure there's no bear around the corner or log around the corner if you're on a river. It just radically changes where your head is. Was, yeah, it was, I had never really experienced that so strongly as this summer. Because um, usually we don't start on a trail and then find a trail midway through. Um, it was a really cool, the, the contrast that, that that set up for us was really uh, a nice insight. That mentality you've got about you know, being creative and landscapes, I wanted to know, what do you think is the best traverse or expedition that you've done so far? Man, best is hard. And I, I mean, so basically I spent 10 years where I would do a, a three or four week trip each year. Um, so I've got a bunch of those and, and they all are, are so different. Like the easier answer for me is what's the hardest and what's the most rewarding. And those are the same trip, but that's the Mount Logan Traverse that you already alluded to where we went for a full 30 days unsupported. We carried everything to cover 470 miles. I'm not, I'm not as good with, uh, or maybe 370 miles. I don't, I don't have the kilometer conversion there off the top of my head, but a long ways, like a brutal, very hard, challenging trip. But I don't know if that was the best because some trips were, were gloriously easy and comfortable and we caught fish every day, you know, and, and that's a big reward. Other trips we get to go on like a steaming volcano and ski down it, and that's a good, that's uh, an awesome memory. I mean, in just a couple of sentences, you've shown just how diverse your adventure CV is. So, And that's Alaska. It's like, it's the back door. You can, you could literally go 20 minutes here from Anchorage, which is a population 300,000. And if you want to go somewhere that you won't see anybody, you can. Like it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty unique opportunity. It's a really amazing landscape. Yeah, and you chatted about the Mount Logan traverse there as well. I wanted to dive a, a little bit more deeper into those the three tallest peaks in North America. You did a traverse over each one. How did they compare? And can you share any lessons that you learned while doing them? Yeah. Um, so the first, the first. Uh, big mountain I went up was was Denali um, and I'm thinking maybe that was 2011 and we and I worked up to that with my partners like we went up Mount Sanford which is a 16,000 foot peak here on the road system in, in Alaska that was a great way to sample altitude I've never been to altitude before and so we go up Sanford we feel like crap and we're like huh well <laughs> this isn't that much fun but I can do it um, and you get used to uh, winter camping and all that and and uh, I had some friends, one friend specifically said, hey, let's go do a ski trip on the Muldrow Glacier. And I had never heard of the Muldrow Glacier, but uh, it's a good friend. We've been doing trips together. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Like, let's go ski glacier. And then it was later that I realized he was talking about the Muldrow access route to get on Mount Denali. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> You're talking, why didn't you just say Denali? And he's like, oh, you know, it's the Muldrow. Everybody knows what that means. But that's how like... Denali just wasn't on my radar um, and really it was just that that friendship um, with Brad Martin the, the guy that's kind of spearheaded that and then as we started planning that trip I got intimidated by the price and the logistics of going into the base camp um, and again I'm sure this is stuff that, that you're familiar with but that you're maybe some of your listeners aren't but you have to first you got to get to Alaska and then you got to drive up to Talkeetna and then you got to fly to a base camp and then you got to cache food here and here and here. So 
it's complicated um, and expensive. And so at that time in my life, I had more time than money and maybe more muscles than either. That was kind of the fitness peak for me. And so I proposed that we go in from the road system and leave on the road system. So no support flights. And that's what we did. We we biked on the on a park road as far as we could. And then we literally put our bikes in the ditch <laughs> off the road so they wouldn't get hit by a snowplow and switched over to skis. And we invited friends. We, we had maybe 10 or 12 friends bike with us that part to help carry our gear. Awesome trip, easy summit, like great weather and picked up our boats on the on the backside. Some friends had flown those in and, and buried them in the snow for us. So we <laughs> it's like, oh, I hope our boats are here and there's a little flag marking where they should be. And we dig them out. Sure enough, there's our boats. And then we floated out to the town of Talkeetna. So that was a uh, my first big, you know, I think that was four weeks and big objective. And it went easy. It went real easy for us. And, it, and that's a factor of our group dynamics and our fitness level and the weather. And it left me wanting more. And so if you climb Denali and you're thinking, well, what's next? Where I go is like, well, what's the second tallest? And in North America, that's that's Mount Logan in the Yukon Territory. So we started planning for Mount Logan. And Mount Logan is a different beast. It's in the middle of, I mean, Denali's in the middle of nowhere, right? Mount Logan is like like in a different universe. There's, there's, there's nothing near it. Um, very hard logistics, much more expensive. And so kind of the same strategy. It's like, we're fit, we've got the equipment, we've got the time, and let's figure out how to get up Mount Logan from either the road or from a commercial um, airport, like a, a city, a village, and let's figure out how to finish that way too. So we did that, but Logan was a beast. Logan crushed us. Um, and we did, we, we made it, but it's kind of like, it's almost like whatever, like we made it and it was white out. You couldn't see anything. And it's like, what are we doing? And, and we had a bunch of close calls. We had an avalanche uh, where I got buried and a friend took tumble at kind of at the top of the avalanche. He wasn't buried, but he had a, like a green stick fracture, a somewhat broken leg. And we had frostbite and we had snow blindness and we had hypothermia. So it was we were we were just right on the edge of that risk envelope it was like my risk tolerance was really high and it was it was getting me in trouble so we did it awesome accomplishment hugely rewarding and it helped define that risk uh limit that i'm that i have never come even close to since then and after that really it was kind of like well what's the third tallest mountain in North America I've done one and two and that turned out to be in Mexico and that sounded great I, I had heard that elevation in the in the those lower latitudes isn't like being at altitude isn't as hard there like um, 18,000 in Mexico is yeah, like, the atmospheric pressure is different isn't it exactly and we planned a trip then to go in I think it was January so it's like taking a break from Alaska's dark and cold winter to go ride bikes in Mexico and climb this peak easily and, and pack raft out. And literally on our, on our float out to the coast there, there were oranges in the eddies in, in the little calm pools of the river. You know, it's like tropical. It was like, this is not a hard, I mean, it was hard. We made it hard, but it's like, this was comfortable. We had street tacos. We're buying whole chickens like left and right to eat as we work our way across Mexico there. But, but that was kind of a recovery trip after how hard Logan was. And then I did look at what's number four. And number four is St. Elias uh, back in Alaska. And St. Elias is a monster. It's It's got some no-fall zones. It's had some fatalities. And it's, at this point, and I don't expect it to change, it's, it is too, too risky for me, too dangerous for me with my skill set and my comfort level now, being a little bit older, being married, and kind of moving on to to new priorities but that's that's how i started or just kind of fell into those tallest three in north america it wasn't really planned until until they were done i guess <laughs> yeah i mean we'll touch more on that risk and reward a bit later on as well but would you say that that was the biggest lesson that you took away was just reaching that risk limit and understanding that you don't need to keep pushing that far yeah absolutely and that was life-changing for me it was also life-changing to to realize how capable we were. Um, I mean, we 
what we did was hard and we did it really well and we we maintained a good group dynamic and all that that's all awesome and i took a lot of that confidence from that trip and from other trips into other aspects of my life but the take home was like dude you almost died and for and for what i'm i'm out here to collect that landscape i'm out here for fun yeah what's what's the what's it worth so i yeah that kind of that and then a bunch of of sort of accidents from friends and, and fatalities in the mountains for friends in the following several years it all kind of happened at, at once like when we were on denali you know we were meeting people here and there and i can think of four of the people we saw on denali that died in the next several years really yeah so it's just kind of like what what is well people not learning that lesson or just getting too addicted maybe that's hard for me to say yeah. um you know very high performance couple of these guys were very high performance athletes that um, just putting it all on the line for doing what they love or what makes them feel alive. Um, a couple of guys, I think one was in an avalanche. So it's just, I mean, for everybody, whether you're pushing that hard or not, the more time you spend outside, the, the more hazard you're exposed to. It can be a little bit of a game of numbers. But the combination of those, of my close calls, these guys dying, some other deaths in my friend group, like well, that all combined to make me just step back. <laughs> like, what are my priorities? What am I doing? You know, and I'm still doing that um, 10 years later. Right? And you're still here. <laughs> and I'm still here. And I'm, 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 I've, though, statistically, that, that window of the 20s and 30s, like that is when most people die in the mountains. And so it feels like an accomplishment to have moved past that. Yeah, absolutely. To wind it back in time a bit as well. Uh, you said that you drove your Chevy from Alaska all the way to MIT in Boston. And I was wondering, as you're passing through Canada and Pacific Northwest, did you get any inspiration for adventure in the area? Uh, it, you know, I have, I have been so focused on Alaska my whole life. And, and something I regret about my time at MIT and, and in college and another grad program was that there was actually some really cool stuff to do in all of those areas that I really didn't do. Like, instead of appreciating what was there, I was just homesick for Alaska. And any window I had, I went home to Alaska. So there is some, I mean, the Canadian Rockies are just stunningly gorgeous. And, and Boston has amazing rock climbing just two hours from town and all this, but I, I never got drawn into it. And Alaska, excuse me, Alaska has so much that I want to do that I'm just, I'm a little bit overwhelmed by it. Like, I'm not going to get done what I want to do. And I'm trying. <laughs> I'm, you know, <laughs> taking every vacation I can to, to, to see more of Alaska. It stresses me out a little bit. Would, would you say, I, I, I was wondering what the culture shock was between Anchorage and Boston. Was that part of the reason why you kept flying home? Or like, how different was it? It was, it was shockingly different for me. Um, and I had been out of Alaska. I went to college in Minnesota, which is in the Midwest. Um, and I went to one grad program in Santa Barbara, California. And so those were also different um, from Alaska, especially, I mean, I drove to, to Minnesota, you know, as an 18 year old and drive on a campus. I was like, oh, wow, what have I done? <laughs> I knew it was going to be flat, but I didn't think it was going to be like this. You know, I hadn't visited or anything. But, but Boston, when I got there, I had spent um a little bit of time in europe as part of my uh, college program and when i arrived in boston uh, it felt to me more like europe than it did like the us um which maybe reflects a little bit on how little i've seen of europe or how little i've seen of the us or something but um it was fast paced and the people were driving quickly and and um and dressed nicely uh and and it just it felt very different um and I was pretty uncomfortable. And my grad program was split between Boston and, and Cape Cod, which is a lot more um, rustic kind of country setting. And that was a better fit for me. And I, I, I probably wouldn't have tried that program without that. But it, but I, yeah, I felt uncomfortable. And I, I did drive a few times to go do that rock climbing and, and the rock was great, but man, getting in and out of the city was just terrible i just drove me nuts and and i'm spoiled right because when i'm home in alaska it's like literally 20 minutes um, for bigger mountains so so i did what i could and i was playing ultimate frisbee competitive frisbee while i was there and, and all through college that was my my bigger outlet then 
so I had that, but but yeah, I felt I was uncomfortable the whole time there in Boston. I went to bands, to concerts, you know, I went and got good food. I did those things. Um, and I worked my ass off for the school. I was very driven academically. But but as far as mountain time, as far as recovery, as soon as I could, I just I would get out and get back home to Alaska. With landscapes in mind, I really wanted to hear a bit more about the Gates of the Arctic trip that you took. It looked epic, 400 miles in 19 days, was it? I wanted to know, how, how was it for you? Yeah, so that was one of my longer, um, maybe the longest summer trip that I'd done. Um, and I, I had been really focusing on winter trips because it's so efficient to be on skis and the snow covers all the brush so that it's, you can kind of go more places. Um, and I was really drawn to those glacial landscapes. And then after seeing a bunch of that, I started wanting to see something a little bit different. Um, and that also the timing there was, um, that's I think when I started dating my now wife and, and she was more interested in, in these summer explorations. So we planned that, that big trip through the Brooks Range and, and actually we planned it as part of, we wanted to see all of the Brooks Range, so, you know, whatever that means, all of it. Um, we wanted to travel from the eastern end to the western end and it was it felt like too much to do with our work schedules and everything to do it all in one push a number of people have done that um, but we split it up into three parts uh, like eastern and central and western and what you're talking about in the in the gates of the arctic that was the central part and that's where we went first yeah it's it's great we you fly into a little village and um the village you know by that i mean there's maybe population 250 or so Anaktuvik Pass. It's actually one of the, the most recent settlements, like that group of Alaska natives was um, nomadic in their like grandparents' um, lifetimes. So it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing to, to see that. Oh, wow. Yeah, very, very young history. Um, and so fly into that village and then and then start working our way west um, to exit in Ambler, which is another another native village. And it, the Brooks Range is so big, and it's got kind of varying geology along its length. And so, in terms of the landscape, things varied from feeling pretty broad and open and being in tundra um, to this this pocket of granite towers in the middle uh, called Aragetch. And it's anomalous. It's like there's no granite anywhere else. And all of a sudden you're big faces, thousands of feet tall. Um, it's a it's a big wall climbing destination. Uh, and and just like again, stark contrast in landscape to where you were at two days earlier, just of travel. Um, and if you're on the north side of the Brooks Range, there's not much vegetation, you know, you can see a long ways. And if you cross over to the south side of the divide, there's big trees, there's different animals. So in that three weeks, you get to see a lot of, of different landscapes, different colored waters, um, a river that was too low to float one day and then flooding the next day. Um, and just, yeah, just this really nice dynamic and wild landscape. Yeah, and tons of animals like wolves and bears and caribou, um, just kind of routine. You know, it would be weird if you didn't see uh, those. Um, I was going to ask as well, uh, you know, you, you talked about um, uh, in that soundtrack uh, article that you wrote, you talked about playing hard and we, we've already gone over Mount Logan where on that one trip you had the, the snow blindness and the hypothermia and the avalanche burial. Uh, do you think it's necessary to play hard in the outdoors and, and to push boundaries? Not at all. No, I think, I mean, this is this is kind of what I learned on, on that Mount Logan trip. Um, no, like you can have a completely fulfilling experience having a picnic in a city park, like that can totally be enough. And, and I think that it can be dangerous to get um, attached to like the Red Bull or I don't know what the, what the UK version of, of the kind of adrenaline sports um, are but they there gets it's so easy to get caught up in like am i getting this documented um or is this going to be a great story when i get home we have all these different 
ways to be motivated and ways to be rewarded. And, and I think it's really important for people's safety to kind of identify what, what really matters to them. And that that's changed for me. That's changed a lot in the last 10 years. I changed a lot after getting buried in an avalanche, right? And good thing, because if you don't learn from those experiences, then you're more likely to get in trouble. I think about this largely in the in terms of water, because when I'm teaching swift water safety, it's to people that are scared about the water or, um, or kind of anticipate something going wrong and not knowing what to do. And and there's a there's a river rating scale, right? It's like class one, two, three, four. And so we as humans, I think generally would like to match our skill set with equivalent challenges. Um, if I'm really good at something, I want to do something that like requires me to be really good at it. Otherwise, I'm just kind of bored. And so one way to do that in water is to work your way up that difficulty scale, class one, class two, class three, class four. But there's also class five and six, and six is like potentially fatal. So, so when do you call it? Like, it doesn't make sense to just keep doing harder water just because it's there and just because you get better. And, and so this was another lesson I took from a, um, a loss of a friend, a friend that drowned pack rafting. His loss just kind of rattled me to my core because we had been doing the same things, cutting the same corners. Like we didn't have formal education. We wouldn't always carry a dry suit, even though we're in cold water and stuff like this. And, and he wasn't seeking hard rapids. So it's a little bit, little bit of a stretch, but, but I was and it. What it changed for me was the mentality that I don't need to move to class X, whatever. I could just do what I'm doing and focus on my, my technique. I could just try to master it. And that was kind of a radical regime change for me that like, I don't need to climb a harder mountain. I could just try to climb this mountain perfectly, whatever that means for you. Perfectly might mean getting a photo, you know, every 200 feet, or it might mean having the perfect lunch and surprising your girlfriend with a cantaloupe that you carried up because that's ridiculous. Who carries a cantaloupe up a mountain? <laughs> it just, it, it made me realize, it made me reassess my own motivation um, and recognize that there are ways to stay challenged without exposing yourself to more danger. That was a long way to say that. That's that. That's the take home. That's what I want That's what I want you to hear is that there are ways to challenge yourself without it becoming more dangerous. And that that's a really important lesson for me to have learned. And I and I hope that in this pack rafting book that I'm that I'm just publishing now, I hope people get that out of it. And I'm. I think I am kind of hitting people over the head with the message. So I think they will get it out of it. I mean, it, fantastic that you talk about challenge as well, just at the end there too, because I wanted to ask about the Alaskan wilderness classics. Uh, you've entered so many, and I think you alluded to it earlier in the, in the conversation where you said that you entered uh, these races for, for about 10 years or, or so. Could you tell us about your first time entering the Alaskan wilderness classic? Yeah, and, and let me explain what that is because they're not, it's hard even to find documentation on them. The, the classics, I think, are about 30 years old, and it started more or less as like a bar bet. You know, somebody was, somebody said, I'm going to walk from, from Hope to Homer in four days. And somebody else said, there's no way, can't be done. And so then the next summer they meet up and try to do it, and, and they do do it. So it's, you're given a starting point, you're giving an ending point, those are typically maybe 150 to 200 miles apart and self-supported, no sponsorship, no food drop. Uh, if you get in trouble, you need to self-rescue. And that might mean walking out a different way. It might mean coordinating a flight to pick you up on a gravel bar. It might mean calling in the, the uh, Air National Guard if it's an emergency or, or trying to, you know, you don't, you don't get to control when they come or not, but so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty wild experience and more than anything else it's it's an excuse to push your limits like there's just enough of a safety net you know there's some people more or less around you some people that are probably in front of you some people that are behind again it's off trail so you don't you don't know that they're in front or behind but on a lot of these courses it's pretty obvious like that's the pass that people are going to go through or that's the river that people are going to float 
there's there's enough people around. Everybody's carrying satellite communication. That's that's a requirement. And so it's an excuse to try. You know, when I first heard about it, and then I, I I heard that the guys don't bring tents on a summer course. I'm like, what? You're going you're going to go walk 150 miles without a tent? That's crazy. But everybody's doing it. So yeah, I'll try it. I'll go without a tent. And then the next year, you, you know, it's like, well, those guys actually don't carry sleeping bags either. <laughs> it's like, really? No sleeping bags? So yeah, sure. Next time, no sleeping bag. So you, you just, you can, for me, I love learning. I'm, I've always been motivated academically. I've never learned as much as I did on these classics, especially the first ones. They just, they just devastated me uh, in terms of how, how much I could improve. So it, it was hard to recognize that, but also exciting because it's like, I could improve a lot. And you've got the role models around you that are doing it without a tent, without a sleeping bag, that have all these tricks that are able to follow game trails that I can't even see. Uh, on that first course, I was plowing ahead and doing really well through this pretty thick brush, hard travel. And and son of a gun, every time I found a good game trail, I'd see a footprint on it. And I'd take that game trail and it would be good travel. And then I'd lose it. And then I'd be in the brush, you know, hard, hard, hard. And then I'd find another game trail and there's that footprint again. So somebody was in front of me and they knew how to connect all those game trails. They were just that much better at understanding where the moose are going, where the wolves are going, whatever. Yeah, I mean, you've said like Alaska in general have more of like a, a lean-to towards functional adventure. Is, is that kind of portrayed in that moment, do you think? Totally, yeah. And and the guy, that specifically, that was Roman Dial, who, who later became a good friend and mentor. Like, he's got that skill set. He's an incredible navigator, and he's in, and through his, partly through his education, he's a um, ecologist, Um he, he has that insight as to animal behavior and he uses it when he's out hiking. And it's similar to the, the traditional indigenous, indigenous knowledge, you know, that a, that a bunch of the native folks around here have. And I'm not good at that. So, <laughs> but I recognize it. I'd be like, that's somewhere I could improve. So again, kind of a long answer there, but those wilderness classics were kind of an excuse to learn. And it was very much a personal challenge. Um, Find, I found partners that had really similar interests and were interested in cutting the same corners. Um, so we do a winter course with no tent. It's like, wow, really? Like, what if we're in a blizzard? And like, we'll get through it. We'll dig, you know, let's bring a shovel instead of a tent or something like that. And through that process, learned a lot about how to travel, learned a lot about what my body needs in terms of fuel, like on, a, on, on something that's that intense, especially in the summer when you're not sleeping, um, well, some people don't sleep at all. My first course, I slept four hours a night. I did the course last summer and slept six hours a night. That was amazing. But your body is so run down that I remember eating a stick of string cheese, you know, just like a chunk of cheese. And I could feel it kick in. Like I could feel the fuel. And that was awesome. I was like, this is amazing. Like my body is so tuned in to this like very human interaction with with the landscape, walking over the landscape. Um, and it's like, this is the fuel that I need to keep moving. Like, it's so cool. So man, I, those, I'm so grateful that I stumbled into those. And I think I did maybe 12 or 13. And, um, and uh, that really opened up everything for me, like the confidence that I took coming out of those, the skill set that I gained. I mean, that's why we went to Denali. It was, those were classic. Those were two guys from the classics and a third guy who I hadn't met yet, who then I ended up doing three classics with, like that was the community. Yeah. So really cool learning opportunities and really hard after that first one. You asked about the first one, like just crushed. I finished that. Couldn't take care of myself. I needed help. Um, I was like, never going to do this again. I am never going to do this again. That was so insanely hard. And I'm hobbled for like a month. Like I went to the grocery store and had to put all my weight on the cart, pushing the cart, you know, the wheeled cart to like get ice cream more than anything else to try to regain the weight. Cause I lost like eight pounds and uh, just dragging my feet, shuffling, shuffling. And, and that was like, 
that was a long and hard recovery. And two weeks into it, I'm thinking about ways that I can improve and like, oh, well, if I had had this different food or if my shoes were bigger, um, you know, if I'd slept differently, blah, 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 getting fired up to go back next year. And, and I did, I went back for the next six years or something. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Um, I, I mean, yeah, you, you've, you've, you mentioned devastated, uh, there, I think one of the quotes you put was, uh, it's devastating, but, uh, on the back side of that, they're hugely rewarding. Hugely. Does yeah. that, that statement I say like devastating, but on the backside, hugely rewarding. How does that play into your, your risk and reward way of thinking? I, yeah, good question. I, I think that, I think there's a strong connection between risk and reward and, and that the things that reward us the most require the most risk. I think that risk doesn't need to be danger. Like, Risk can be exposure, putting yourself out there. That could be emotional. If you're talking about starting a family, starting a relationship. Risk could be vulnerability. And that's like admitting, being comfortable talking about things I'm feeling uncomfortable with. So I think there's a lot of ways to um, get that reward from risk without it being dangerous, without it being life-threatening. I'm really emphasizing that again, my head is coming out of this pack rack book where it's like, I'm just, I just spent like six months straight thinking about risk and trying to help people not drown. <laughs> um, yeah. But for me, sure. That wrote that Logan trip by far the hardest, by far the most rewarding. I followed that up with the wilderness classic the next summer, absolutely devastating. I finished it. And I remember distinctly this thought that, that it's like, wow, I just used, I just used my entire skill set. I used, everything that I've been building since high school, like since rock climbing in high school, through understanding nutrition, understanding navigation, um, finding a shelter out of the rain in this little rock outcrop, you know, all this stuff. That was hugely rewarding. Uh, and it was a hard trip and it wouldn't have been rewarding. It was uh, classics that I've done have been easier. You just go back to work the next week and you're like, well, yeah, I had this awesome trip. I got to see a bunch that doesn't stick with you. It doesn't stick with me, I should say. So those harder trips, more rewarding, a big part of it for me is that I'm learning more from those trips. That's, that's a lot of that motivation too. We talked about landscape, but I, I guess I should have mentioned learning and didn't really recognize it until we've been talking about it here. <laughs> Each one of those things like Logan trip, I learned a lot about risk and, and this, this hard classic learned a lot about, or, or just kind of um, affirmed everything that I'd been trying to learn for 15 years. So that's part of the reward too. Yeah, it's a tough space. It's a tough space because I don't want people to pursue dangerous risk just because it's just because you get that hit of endorphins. And it a lot of guys are talking about it as a drug, right? And recognizing it that there's addictive qualities. Are you sacrificing time with your family to do this? Like what's your motivation? Are you are you avoiding confrontation with stuff at home, at work, whatever? Like, man, it gets so complicated so fast. And and a lot of a lot of these high performance outdoor athletes struggle with depression, struggle with mental health issues. I mean, a lot of everybody does in society. But I think when I was younger and a bit more naive, I thought, well, if you play outside, you're probably fine. Things are probably going on, going just fine. And then to start collecting data that that's not true. One of my one of my whitewater mentors, a friend and mentor, committed suicide. And I had, where the hell did that come from? Like he was he was an amazing paddler, total control on the river, but that didn't mean total control in his personal life. And not, and I thought it did. You see somebody like that, or you see uh, a professional rescue, you know, whether it's military or, or fire department or police, like those guys have really high suicide rates and the, and it's so easy to look at them and be like, these guys have their shit together. They, if there's a fire, that dude is going to come get me out of there. Like he knows what's up. Hmm. And then he goes home and he's got all this trauma he's dealing with because he's like pulling people out of fires. Like, duh. No, but you're right though. Cause I mean, I, I'm a baby in the world of adventure really. Like this is, 
this is um you know in the grand scheme of life it's not like i've been 12 years old you know rock climbing and bouldering since then or anything you know this is i'm really am you know especially compared to all the guests a baby but what i'm keen to be making sure i'm not you know pedal to the metal about is that i've got a daughter who's five and for the next 15 years is prime opportunity to like destroy her life if i if i pass away from an adventure you know if, if i don't come home um you know, before that, you know, oh, I didn't really know my dad beforehand. After that, you'll be a young adult. You can process it a bit better. So I'm really, you know, you, you mentioned like good points there about risk and reward, even personally, you know, as I am so keen to do so much as I, you know, dig deeper into these passions, just being careful not to overexert a skill set. I think um, it was a, a Rebecca Coles, previous guest. Uh, she said that she likes to push herself in training grounds but for first ascents she likes to take a mountain that's well within her comfort zone so yeah. i think that's a good a good place to be is that's awesome untouched do what you do what you do well um and a familiar place push yourself yep yep you as you describe that and especially like adding a daughter to the mix i think you're exactly right like how you learn and how you proceeded is it's more than just about you and and when when people die in these mountain sports, I'm sure you've heard it. Um, they died doing what they loved, right? I hate that. I really am uncomfortable with that because first of all, they probably died choking on snow or water. Like that is not cool. And and they died selfishly. Like they left that daughter. They left those parents. They left you know, man. So. That's not, that's not, an, that, that feels like an excuse and that doesn't work for me. I'm all for positivity, but I've always seen that as scraping the barrel of positivity, like really trying to find <laughs> the silver lining. Totally. Is, is going, at least he was doing his hobby. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is probably part of the processing and that's natural and everything. I'm not trying to critique people for saying that, but I am uncomfortable when I hear it. And, and for you, where you're at in this learning curve, I'd say, I recommend, um, okay, so there's there's good fear and bad fear. And and I'm probably not an expert to talk about this, but maybe, maybe it can be a theme for some of your later shows, to get an expert on fear, because good fear is good, and it it keeps you alive, and that's that's important. And then, and bad fear is, is fear that doesn't actually help you out, right? It's like, you can be really scared about something that's actually not dangerous. And, and it might take a mentor or a guide, uh, you know, a friend with more experience to help you understand why that's not actually dangerous. This is what I do in the water in these safety courses. Like somebody says, I'm really uncomfortable swimming to that island. And I can say, we've got this. I'm here to help you. I've got a boat set up there that can pull you out of the water. Let's try it in this pool first, blah, blah, blah. So that's the fear part. And then the other part is the learning environment. And this is, you just hit on it with what you said your previous guest had. It's like people talk about a wicked learning environment where you don't really get that feedback until the feedback is really bad. This would be like an avalanche. Like things go fine, things go fine, things go fine. You're making mistakes, things go fine, things go fine. And then when they don't go fine, you're buried. Mm. So that's a wicked learning environment. There's just, there's not a lot of cushion there. So learning in an environment that's not wicked is where you get to make mistakes and you get that feedback. And, and for me, this was the wilderness classics largely, is that I'd make a mistake, I'd bring the wrong food, I'd lose food, I'd lose a map. But it wasn't, maybe partly because of the skill set I had coming into it, you know, growing up in Alaska and all that, I never was in danger because of those. I never, I never had a close call on a classic, even though that was hardest I've ever pushed like harder than Logan so there's something about choosing that learning environment and and identifying like this is a good place to learn this is a good place to to push beyond my 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 boundaries a little bit and the third piece that I'll give there and I'll stop I promise <laughs> this is something I actually learned from a, a ranger on Denali um, this guy he had I can't remember exactly what he what he called it, but basically a, a 60% rule, something like this, where you leave something in the tank. And and again, this maybe be another subject for, for you, specifically for Denali. 
where you don't want to stretch yourself so thin that a small setback turns into a big deal. Uh, this guy, Daryl, he's coming at it from a rescuer's perspective. He's basically saying, don't exert yourself to 90% because you might get that call at two in the morning that you need to go out and do a rescue. You got to be on it. A simple um, analogy here, metaphor is that like you have a rubber band and you stretch it all the way tight and you just can't stretch it anymore. You do lose that bag of food or uh, a cramp on brakes or whatever, and you've got nowhere to go. So leave some elastic in that rubber band. When you are really exposed, like when you're on Denali, that's important. When you're in the backyard and you're 10 miles from a road, from a car, from a house, that's not that big of a deal. So that's that's that learning environment. Um, you talk about being safe in the water there, and that's actually quite a nice segue to, to this one, which is just trying to figure out the, the pack rafting. Was it the Alaskan Wilderness Classics uh, that we have your first introduction to it? I, yeah, I had some friends. I already I had some friends from high school that were already doing it, and I was familiar with them. But you're right; it was everybody uses them on those wilderness classics, and and it's simple. It's basically that if you can float a river, you are saving your legs a lot of work. <laughs> um, it can be faster and easier. And so these boats are they're called pack rafts because they're light enough and small enough that you can put them in a backpack. Um, between six and eight pounds is, is probably pretty typical. You can get lighter ones, but then they wouldn't be appropriate maybe for durability or for turbulent water. And yeah, so on, on the Wilderness Classics, you hike for 40 miles and float for 20 and hike for 30 and float for 20. And I love that because it's like upper body, lower body, upper body, lower body. And when my legs are destroyed, I give them an ice bath uh, and, and get to burn out my arms and when my arms are whooped, I get to um, use my refreshed legs. So really a nice way to travel and a really nice way to, to open a bunch of the landscape up. Like those, those rivers and creeks and lakes, those all become part of the trail system. Whereas before they felt like, like obstacles, like the boundaries of where I could go. The discovery of pack rafting was also, I guess, really it was life-changing because of how much it opened up in terms of recreation and, and seeing a lot of Alaska. And we kind of kind of touched on this, but more specifically, uh, you once said to Lizzie Scully to get something that is better than you and learn up. I was wondering, yeah. did you always have this approach or is this just unique to pack rafting kit? No, I think it's, well, I think that, that quote in terms of the pack raft was the like I bought it to extend my backpacking. Like I bought it as a backpacking accessory. Like let me hike further with this thing. And that thing could have been like jetpack tennis shoes or it could have been a pack raft. It just happened to be a pack raft. But, but then after several years of that, I discovered like, whoa, boating, like maneuvering a boat is fun. Like this is cool. And I had the same realization with like, um, a mountain bike say where it's like you can bike to work you can bike to school like it's it's your commute but then at some point you maybe take a little jump or a banked corner and you're like whoa like this is fun like biking on a trail is really cool and so i have had that experience with a bunch of equipment where it, it transformed from kind of utility to fun like very rewarding and I guess that's probably like the dopamine endorphin, like little hits that you get chemically um, when you do feel like um, G-forces on a banked corner or catch air on skis or whatever. But I do for sure, for people that are asking me advice on boats to get and stuff, it's kind of like, well, if you love to learn, if you love to learn, you should buy a boat that you can grow into uh, rather than one that's just appropriate for, for a beginner or for where you're at right now. And a lot of us do, I mean, learning it, when we're having fun, we learn a lot and learning is rewarding. Um, good equipment can make that more fun. And the bummer is that it costs more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I mean, yeah, you, you've got uh, a huge bulk of knowledge. I mean, I mean, just just briefly, briefly before we go into the last question, the wrap up questions, um, you are, I, I would have mentioned this in, in the introduction as well. You've got this pack rafting manual, which is coming out, which is from the samples is looking insanely good, like very detailed to the point with some great illustrations. 
what what kind of skill level are you putting into it is it literally from like a a through z or are you just talking about the safety in it yeah it's um well it's called the packraft handbook and it uh is intended for all levels of users and and this changed from my original writing um based partly in by uh, through some of the peer review that i got but if you if you I've never heard of a pack raft, but you're interested in like, yeah, absolutely. This, this will walk you through the equipment it's structured pretty similarly to how I run the in-person courses, which is like, we get together, we look at our equipment because different boats are made for different things and you should wear a life vest. And if you're in rapids, you should wear a helmet, you know, so you kind of need to know your equipment before you get in the water. And then when you get in the water, this is, classic just from like what we've been talking about like what can go wrong right this is part of your risk assessment what can go wrong and what do i do when it does go wrong because because it will at some point and what goes wrong in a pack raft or any boat is that you fall out of the boat and so first thing we do is spend time figuring out how you can get back in the boat when you're in the middle of the water we call it a wet re-entry but same thing this like that's basically the progression through the book is like anticipate what can go wrong and then train so that you can respond properly. And if you're a beginner that talks about the basics of how to do that. And if you are a, a class five kayaker, what the book has to offer is how to, how to use a pack raft on a remote trip, because you can access rivers in a pack raft that you can't access in a, in a huge kayak, you know, in a 40 pound, 50 pound kayak. And so, the boats handle differently, they can puncture, you need to bring a repair kit. So that's the kind of information that's there for expert boaters. But I think there's something there for everybody. A lot of it is sharing mistakes that I've made and mistakes that my friends and the peer editors made, which is which is pretty fun because it's a, it's kind of a, a who's who. There's a lot of big names in the pack crafting world and it's like, here's what Roman Dial did wrong and here's what Brad Nicholson did wrong. Here's what Mark Oates did wrong. And, is what I did wrong. And um, so that's, that's been fun to kind of, you and I talked, I think it was before you were recording a little bit about humility and, and being humble. And, and I think that's, that's all in there in the book intentionally to try to make this all more accessible um, to, to people as they learn. It's down to earth. Down to earth. And it's also, we made, this is, was an awesome partnership with the illustrator, with Sarah Gla uh, Glaser. Between us, with her illustrations, we are like, let's make them women, let's make them not white, like, let's make this feel as inclusive as possible. Um, so that hopefully in 10 years, as, as packrafting gets more diverse, people can look at this and be like, oh, there's people like me in here. That's so overdue, right, to get more representation in our resources and in actually outside. So I've got a bunch of, and fortunately, between my wife and our, our group of friends, a bunch of photos of of not the traditional gray-haired white guy uh, <laughs> that, that you and I are going to turn into. Uh, yeah, eventually it will happen. Uh, apparently my partner found a, a gray hair on my head uh, the other day and I told him not to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. So last question before we get to some wrap-up ones. Of all of your adventures so far, if you can very briefly go through them all in your head, um, what is one moment that you would love to relive? Oh my gosh. Um, I'm going to give you another, another cop out here where, uh, on, on several trips and it seems to have to do with the timing, like after two weeks or after three weeks, I fall into a rhythm. this like daily rhythm where it's like, I boil water in the morning, blah, blah, blah. And then we do route finding all day. And, and that's the sweet spot. Like, I love getting to this place where the chores aren't chores. Like that's just kind of routine and your mental effort is spent figuring out what pass to go over, what line to pick through the river, what, um, you know, how to get through the brush. Like if there's animal trails there or not, that's a little bit of being like in the zone. I was going to say, is that, is that what, is that when, is that when you mentioned about being in the flow? It, well, there's different types of the flow. Like a lot of the flow for me is like when I'm on a hard rapid or when I'm on a hard ski line or whatever. But this is a different, this is a, a more comfortable flow that just feels 
that just feels right. I don't know. Something about it is is this like essential humanness to it. It's like I often am out doing this stuff thinking this is what we're supposed to be doing. Like I should have been born 200 years ago because I love this. It's so rewarding. It's good for my body. Like my body feels better. My mind feels better. Like I'm the best Luke that I can be. I'm the best husband that I can be to Sarah because I'm like, this is where I'm supposed to be. It takes me a while to get there. And I, and I mostly notice it as soon as we're done. Like we spend the night at a hotel or we spend the night first night back at the house and neither of us can sleep very well because we're like, we hear a noise and it's like, was that a bear? Was that a, you know, but no, it's like a car. Oh, the boiler. Um, <laughs> a boiler, yeah, anything. Or it's too light or it's too hot because, oh, we've got blankets. Let's use blankets again. We're like, oh man, we like our bodies have been producing the heat. We don't need all these blankets. Anyway, that's not a, that's like, that happens on most of these trips at some point and kind of get in that, that rhythm. And that's what I want to relive. Like that's where I want to go. So it's a type of, it's like a mindset or headspace. So it's not the hardest thing and it's not the most rewarding thing, but it's like, it's the, it's a little bit of being in the zone there and, and really just that strong connection to the land and to our bodies and what we're capable of. So I've got three wrap up questions to, to end it on. First one is you've said that you're not much of a hiker or a runner. So if you could only pick one mode of human powered transport for a year for your adventures, what would it be? Ice skating. I freaking love ice skating. It is so much fun. And I didn't grow up ice skating. And um, you can you can glide 30 feet on one push. You know, it's so efficient. It's so fast and it's you get to see cool stuff. Um, there, I should specify. So there's Nordic skates, which are, are blades that can clip into ski bindings. So I wear my ski boots for these when we're doing remote trips. And we've done maybe four or five trips now that are like multi-day, right? So we're full winter camping and sleeping out on these lakes and seeing crazy cool stuff and hunting for like the black ice, the perfect ice. So there's that. And then where I'm at here in Anchorage, I'm two blocks from a hockey rink, um, a public public hockey rink that gets mopped every day. And so all winter, that especially this year with uh, COVID, I've been going on my, my work break, like two in the afternoon to go skate on hockey skates. And man, just like, like I was saying with other equipment, you can carve on hockey skates and you can go backwards and you can hockey stop. And then, you know, I've got a stick and a puck and it's like, these are so much fun. So I am, I love ice skating and I've switched into it largely because it's less risky. Like after my avalanche close call, after losing a, a former girlfriend in an avalanche, I, that was another sort of like step back, man. The mountains don't care that I want to ski this line. There are risks involved with ice skating, but it's not avalanches. Like it's not going to surprise me. Um, even though I've collected all this data and done as best I could, like, I'm not going to get caught in a slide on ice. I can be like, that's thin ice. That's an open spot. Uh, I'm going too fast, whatever. So those are the risks there, but it's so much easier for me to manage those risks. So hundred percent ice skating. It's awesome. Nice one. And then the last question is where can we keep up to date with your adventures and keep an eye on this Packraft handbook coming out soon? Uh, I have a website called things to look at. And it, this is a little bit of an unfortunate pun. My brother had a website called things to look at, and it is um, maybe not safe for work, depending on where you live. <laughs> he did, he's a professional photo and, and videographer. Um, he does a little bit of spicy stuff. So I made a, a joke out of that things to look at where it's spelled like my first name, L-U-C. Um, and that's where I've got information on the Packraft Handbook and trip reports. And I've got a bunch of educational resources there about how I, I plan these, these um, trips through um, off-trail Alaska and ski advice and Packraft advice. So as I get older, I put more and more energy into sort of the outreach aspect of this, like thinking, man, I've learned a lot. I should, I should try to help other people more. So that's all on the website, things to look at. And the Packraft Handbook will be available this summer. I'm psyched. It's going to be, it's going to be so awesome. 
Yeah, man. Well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll make sure that's all in the show notes as well. And you'll probably have more information as well on release times and status of things. So I'll make sure yeah. I put that on the show notes as well when, when the episode comes out. But Luke, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and chatting to us. No, that was fun. Yeah, I appreciated your questions and your homework. I can't believe how much you already know about me. It's awesome, I guess. A little weird. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really hope you enjoyed the episode. Even if it was just a fraction of what I did editing it, then I know that you would have taken away quite a lot. A bit of a long one this one, but before I wanted to go, Luke chats at the start about experiencing gifts of nature, and I'd love to hear from you all when you're out doing adventures, whether it's paddling, climbing, hiking. What are some real gifts that you've experienced? You can get in touch with me on btmtravelpod at gmail.com, or you can do what 99% of you have nominated yourselves to do, which is get in touch with me on Instagram. I check all of my requests, so every single message that goes into there, I do so you can get let me know on there what's some real gifts that you've experienced when outdoors and adventuring but before i go as well last thing check out the pack rafting handbook give it a look it is fantastic whether you are a beginner or an expert you can place your pre-order and they're all shipped out in may so be sure to check the show notes and go out there and if you like this episode i think you'll really like last week's episode with george vlad first ascents with rebecca coles or even our interview with caroline george way back when about unconditional acceptance but otherwise i hope you have a fantastic day and i will see you in next week's episode